Good morning to all of you. Please have a seat. We are, uh, as Mary said, concluding our series in 1 Corinthians today. Uh, those of you who have been around a while know that this is actually the second time that as a church we've gone through this most important letter of Paul's. Uh, and there are a couple reasons for that. One, uh, the great Raymond Brown, who uh, studied and taught at St. Mary's here in Roland Park, who in fact is buried just a, a, a mile or two from here uh, on the campus of what is now Charlestown, used to be St. Charles College, uh, one of the greatest uh, New Testament scholars of the 20th century, said if you need one introduction to Paul, you should read 1 Corinthians. And uh, we especially were interested to use it when we started New Hope 14 years ago, uh, because it is a letter about the church. And so the idea was that by spending some time in 1 Corinthians, studying how Paul uh, engaged with this especially difficult group of Christians at Corinth, that that could give us some guidance as we started our new congregation back in 2003. And back then we went through at a blistering pace, uh, took 33 weeks to go through 1 Corinthians, and that was far too fast. So this time, we took 75 weeks. This is the 75th week. Those of you who are visiting today may be grateful to know uh, that we don't have uh, a long series coming up next and that, uh, by God's grace, we'll probably not uh, do another First Corinthians series um, ever again. But, uh, but I think it has been a, has been a valuable experience. Um, in many ways, uh, one of the things that I did in preparing for this last uh, ser- sermon on 1 Corinthians, this last uh, uh, look at, at this book, was I actually went back to the archives. Here I have the CDs from the very first time we went through 1 Corinthians. Remember CDs? Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I listened, I, actually, I, I, I only listened to the first and the last of the sermons, but in the last sermon, uh, I talked about seven things. So this, you know, if you if you if you think that I haven't improved, now I know well enough to know that you can't have a seven-point sermon, uh, <coughs> like three, maybe four. Uh, but I did talk uh, in in that sermon about seven problems in Corinth, kind of as an overview. Seven problems in Corinth that Paul was addressing and seven ways that we could uh, possibly find an antidote to them. And if you look at the history of Corinth, there actually is some hope that there can be solution to these problems, that we can move beyond them by God's grace. See, 1 Corinthians, as we discussed before, is actually not the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 5, he, Paul actually mentions an earlier letter that he wrote to them. So the Corinthian, 1 Corinthians we have is actually at least the second. Uh, and then 2 Corinthians may actually be more than one letter put together. But 2 Corinthians comes later. And if you think Paul is mad in 1 Corinthians, if you think he is fed up with this church in 1 Corinthians, just wait till you get to the second one, where he has absolutely blown his top. And in 2 Corinthians, he is addressing the fact that what happened at the end of 1 Corinthians when he said, I'm going to send Timothy to you to sort things out, didn't work. 
this church continued to be rebellious. This church continued to be uh, uh, wrapped up in all kinds of dissolute and sinful activity from uh, immorality to rejecting valid authority to following after false doctrines. And Paul had to follow up on this with what he later talks about as a painful visit. He went and visited them, and that didn't work. On that visit, they rejected him, and then he had to come back again. But we know that about two years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, probably the pinnacle of Paul's production as a theologian, uh, as a writer. Romans evidences a great deal of prior planning, a great deal of structure. Uh, it, it's it's a, a very coherent letter. It's powerful as a piece of argumentation. And it is something that he wrote when he was, guess where? In Corinth. So two years after he writes this letter to the Corinthians, where he's starting to get upset, and less than two years after he has these painful visits and he has to write Second Corinthians where he's just pouring his heart out, Paul is in a place, emotionally, relationally with the folks in Corinth, where he can stay in Corinth for some time and compose this letter to the Romans, which does not bear the imprint of somebody who is emotionally distraught or somebody who's unable to focus. And then we have in the Annals of Church History a letter, one of the very first documents of the early church. It's a letter called, uh, it's referred to as, as First Clement. Uh, it, it, we're not quite sure which Clement this was, and it probably doesn't matter, but it's written from Rome to Corinth. It's probably written about 40 years after First Corinthians. And in First Clement, the Church of Rome says to the church in Corinth, this is a leader of the Church of Rome, who says, has anyone ever visited you who did not approve your most excellent and steadfast faith, who did not admire your sober and magnanimous piety in Christ, who did not proclaim the magnificent character of your hospitality? Remember, hospitality was one of the problems the Corinthians had. In chapter 11, Paul yells at them for the fact that they have these love feasts that they, they claim to be celebrating the Eucharist when really all they're doing is having a party and the poorer folks show up at the end after work and there's like nothing left for them. But now the author of First Clement is, is praising the, the magnificent character of their hospitality who did not congratulate you on your complete and sound knowledge. You did everything without partiality. You lived in accordance with the laws of God submitting yourselves to your leaders and giving to the older men among you the honor due them. Again, not the sort of thing that was going on when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, let alone second. But you instructed the young people to think temperate and proper thoughts. You charged the women to perform all their duties with a blameless, reverent, and pure conscience, cherishing their own husbands as is right. You taught them to abide by the rule of obedience, to manage the affairs of their household with dignity and all discretion. Moreover, you were all humble and free from arrogance, submitting rather than demanding submission, more glad to give than to receive, and content with the provisions that God supplies. This does not describe the church in Corinth that Paul's writing to in 1 Corinthians. But 40 years later, this is what a leader of the church of Rome says about them. 
giving heed to his words, you stored up God's words diligently in your heart. You kept his sufferings before your eyes. And thus a, a profound and rich peace was given to all, together with an insatiable desire to do good. And an abundant outpouring of that Holy Spirit fell upon everyone as well, and being full of holy counsel, with excellent zeal and a devout confidence, you stretched out your hands to Almighty God, imploring him to be merciful if you had inadvertently committed any sin. You struggled day and night on behalf of all the family of believers, that through fear and conscientiousness the number of his elect might be saved. You were sincere and innocent and free from malice, one toward another. Every faction and every schism was abominable to you. That's uh, an absolute 180 from the beginning of First Corinthians. You remember where they, everybody's picking teams and they're, they're, you know, I'm, on, I'm on team Edward, I'm on team Jacob, I'm on team Paul, team Peter. Oh, you, every faction was abominable to you. You mourned for the transgressions of your neighbors. You considered their shortcomings to be your own. You never once regretted doing good, but you were ready for every good work and being adorned with a virtuous and honorable manner of life. You performed all your duties in the fear of him. The commandments and the ordinances of the Lord were written on the tablets of your hearts. So there's hope, right? There's hope for a fractious, disobedient, rebellious, sinful church, right? Except, Clement says all of this right after he says, we acknowledge we've been somewhat slow in giving attention to the matters in dispute among you, dear friends, especially the detestable and unholy schism so alien and strange to those chosen to God, by God, which a few reckless and arrogant persons have kindled to such a pitch of insanity that your good name, once so renowned and loved by all, has been greatly reviled. And then after praising the way they used to be, he then goes on to talk about what a mess they are. So, Forty years later, the story repeats itself. And so the question that I was asking at that time, as we were planting a new church, was how can we avoid this? How can we avoid this? How do, what, what, what are the problems that we found in Corinth, and how do we avoid them? And what I want to point out this morning is the ways in which I have seen this happen here at New Hope, specifically through the life and ministry of B.J. Hall. Now, I did not ask her if I could do this because I knew that she would not say yes, so I'm just doing it. But I want to point out the ways in which God has shown himself mighty through her and through her ministry. So of these seven problems, the first that I identified was factionalism factionalism party spirit you find in in some older translations and when you read party spirit that doesn't mean like hey let's party no it's like partisanship having teams the antidote to factionalism is seeking unity seeking the unity of the body of christ being jealous to guard the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace trying to live out that prayer that Jesus prayed that we would all be one even as he and his father are one and this is something that I have uniquely experienced in that BJ has on multiple occasions worked very hard to try to bring reconciliation to some relationships that have been broken in our church 
She has extended herself with patience, with mercy, with humility, and with no small amount, I'm sure, of eye-rolling at the stubbornness of other people who are not entirely cooperative with her efforts. This is probably not the sort of thing, unless you've been the recipient of her ministry in this regard, that you would have heard about appropriately. This is the kind of thing that is done in, with discretion and is done uh, privately, but it's something that B.J. has done and done faithfully. Another problem I, that, that I identified is novelty-seeking. You'll remember Corinth, being a port city, was always exposed to the, the latest and greatest fashions in fashion, I'm sure, but also in philosophy and in rhetoric. And the Corinthians seemed to be especially enamored with this Apollos guy who came through and he had the latest techniques and he was flashy and probably good looking and had perfect weatherman hair. And, and, and Paul says, you know, Apollos would be the first guy to tell you that's not what this is about. It's, it's not about having the latest and greatest thing. No, what we need to do, the antidote to novelty seeking, is simply to be faithful to that which God has given us. Adhering firmly to the Word of God and to the truth of our faith as we have professed it along with the faithful churches throughout the ages. One of BJ's most important ministries here at New Hope has been leading the women's Bible study. And in the women's Bible study, as a habit, they don't read the latest bestseller. They don't look at latest trends in theology. For the most part, they study the Bible. And they, one of the things this is, that I like about it is they tend to take their time doing it. They do so thoroughly. And often in the course of this, B.J. herself has written up some outstanding materials to enable folks to study together. B.J. is a smart person. B.J. is clever. B.J. is well-read and urbane. It would be very easy for B.J. to take the path of a typical NPR listener, carrying her tote bag around with whatever the latest book is, following the latest fads and intellectual sophistication. But she is not interested in that because that is not what lasts. B.J. has been faithful to study and to teach the Word of God throughout her ministry. Third problem identified is restlessness. We saw this especially in chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians. People being dissatisfied, wanting to have more, wanting to have better, wanting to have things that, that were more appealing. And the antidote to that is to have an attitude of gratitude. Not And, and uh, no, I rhymed it, sorry. That rather than, than being constantly dissatisfied Wanting, wanting more, wanting new, is to appreciate what we have, to be thankful for the things that we have. And, and B.J. has exercised this in a host of ways. I think of the ways that she has so graciously invited people to her home. I can tell you as somebody who has often had a lot of people over at my house that that is not always an easy thing to do. People tend to break things. Children, especially, tend to break things. You find yourself after they're there having to call the 
air conditioning people because suddenly the air conditioner is not working and it turns out something got unplugged from the wall that should never have been unplugged from the wall, but somebody somewhere small probably did that. And it just happens. And BJ has never once complained about the damage that people have done to her house or the mess they have left. She has graciously received people and has always done so giving the testimony that this is what God has given to me and my family and this is what I share. I'm grateful for the things that God has has given. I don't claim that I have the right to any of them. I affirm that they are all God's and they're to be used for His purposes. The fourth problem identified is contempt. Specifically, contempt for other people. We saw this in chapters 8 through 10 where people... We're basically saying, yeah, I know this person's got this problem. I don't care. I'm just going to do my thing the way I do it. Then you have other people who are saying, oh, I can't believe they're doing that thing. They're really wicked. But BJ is somebody who has consistently demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit, specifically in kindness and love. She has dealt with some difficult people over the years and others. And she has done so with patience and with grace. And I can tell you that in her flesh, BJ would not deal with these people with patience and grace. It is the power of the Spirit within her that enables her to deal with difficult people the way Jesus deals with them and not the way most of us would want to. Fifth problem is contempt not for people but for gifts. Contempt for the gifts of others and a flaunting of your own. We see this in chapters 11 through 14 where people were so enamored with the way they worshipped Jesus that they weren't worshipping Jesus. They were just basically worshipping the way they were worshipping. They were looking down on other people who worshipped differently. The antidote to this is to exercise our gifts in a deferential manner. To exercise our gifts in a way that recognizes that the work God has called us to is important. And we really should be thinking that this is the most important thing that anybody should be doing. But we also have to recognize that someone else is doing something that they think is the most important thing. And if we're all maintaining that attitude, then we can work with one another and we can serve one another. Again, a place I saw this where most people aren't is on the sermon evaluation team for about 10 years, I had a group of people that would get together a few times a year and we would go through the teaching and, and look at what was working and what wasn't, what was strong and what wasn't, what guests came that we really wanted to bring back and which ones we wanted to lose out of our phones. And, and BJ was always ready with detailed, I mean, she had her binder with her notes and she could identify which sermon and which date. She remembered some of these sermons way better than I did and I had preached them. But she had detailed, helpful feedback, sometimes positive, sometimes not. But she always offered that with an attitude of humility and an attitude of deference, recognizing that I was doing the work of preaching that God had called me to, recognizing that I had a whole bunch of different factors that were playing into the decisions I made. She offered what she had with humility and and again with grace, but also with honesty. The sixth problem I identified 14 years ago was that of accommodation. We especially saw this in chapter 15 where Paul says, you got these people who are claiming that there's no resurrection. That's a problem because we confess that Jesus is raised from the dead. 
And if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, because people can't be raised from the dead, then our faith is absolutely pointless. And we should be doing just about anything else on Sunday morning than gathering here to worship this guy who's still dead. I went, when I was in Jerusalem this summer, I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which designates the place where traditionally Jesus is understood to have been laying in the tomb. If you go in there, there's no body there. And our understanding as Christians is that there has not been a body there for almost 2,000 years. It's not like at some point it got stolen. It is empty. And if the tomb is not empty, then what we are doing is a complete waste of time. But you had some urbane, sophisticated people in Corinth saying, well, we of course know from the latest science that people can't be raised from the dead. So when people said that Jesus was raised from the dead, they must have just meant that they had a special experience of him or that we felt like he was still with us or they, they, they felt like somehow his memory lived on. And Paul says, no, that's absolutely not the case. No, we have people who saw the risen Lord who was dead and is now alive. And the response to accommodation, the, added, the, the antidote to that is to hold firmly to doctrinal purity. And to understand the basics of our faith and to continually reaffirm them. That's why when we take communion in, in, in a few minutes, we'll, we'll first stand up and we'll recite together the words of the Nicene Creed, which the faithful churches throughout the ages have often recited, often in the context of the Eucharist. Because this stuff is important. These things we hold to are non-negotiable. And BJ has demonstrated that firm maintenance of doctrinal purity and understanding the basics of our faith in her ministry of teaching others. There are so many people here and elsewhere who have a firm grasp of the essentials of our faith, who hold to them, who can teach others because BJ has been faithful in teaching them. And finally, I identified the problem of a lack of respect leadership it's sort of implicit in chapter 16 certainly it's there in the first few chapters of first corinthians a a, a lack of a willingness to recognize that there's there are leadership roles that god calls people to that he empowers them for and that these ministries like all other ministries have to be received and the way that people receive ministries of leadership is by faithfully and intelligently and graciously following those God's calling to lead. And I can tell you that BJ and I have had some very difficult conversations over the years, but they have never been ones that lacked love and respect and grace. In fact, BJ is the sort of person that is often recognized as a leader to the point that when we open up these elder nominations, she keeps getting nominated and then she keeps declining because she thinks she's supposed to be doing something else. And initially we disagreed, but we ultimately came around to recognize that, as usual, she's right. God has work for her to do as uh, somebody ministering to international students that she couldn't do if she were serving in the role of an elder at this church. And so with deep sadness but also an appreciation of what god will do through her ministry we are glad to 
further develop our commissioning <clears throat> of Jesus uh, of BJ to do this ministry through Christ's power. And I know that whatever church she does end up bringing these international students to will be thrilled to have her. I know that the leadership of that church will be grateful that they will have among them somebody who is gifted, somebody who is powerful, somebody who has the ability to minister abundantly to others and to do so in a way that is in harmony with the way God is working out His purposes in that congregation. BJ has demonstrated that kind of relationship. And really, I think it is a mark of a strong leader that when they're in a position where they are to follow other leaders, they can do so smoothly and graciously. And I'm sure that BJ will do that. And again, all of this is not because of BJ, who is quite a remarkable hobbit, but she herself is not all that. She, as I said, would be the first to tell you that this is the power of Christ working in her by her spirit, transforming her daily into the person that God is making her to be, working out his kingdom purposes in and through her. So I count it a privilege to have been able to worship with BJ for all these years, to serve with her. And I look forward to hearing the stories, as Mary mentioned, about the fruit that her ministry has borne. So this being the end of an era, so to speak. It's also the end of our First Corinthians series, so stick a fork in us. We're done.